welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Thank you very much. It's beautiful to be with you. Thanks to Martha and Joan and all of you people in Nashville for creating this beautiful environment for us. Okay, muscles, thank you, too. (laughs) And thank you, Harvey, for bringing me here and giving me this chance to say over a concerted period of time something that's been very, very valuable to me and special to me that I've looked for this opportunity for three years and now it's here. I'm Jess Lair, a grateful sexaholic. I did not lust yesterday. I have been lust-free for a goodly number of days. These days add up to 3,886 lust-free days. For that freedom from lust, I am never sufficiently grateful. Because of 17 years of 12-step life before I got to S.A., My years in S.A. have been focused primarily on the twelfth step. I reworked the first nine steps on S.A. in my first three months. Since then, as Chuck C. and Clancy have recommended, I've spent my life working on the last three steps, searching only for knowledge of God's will for me and the power to carry that out. This work has shown me that lust is the central issue in my life. All sexual sobriety is what happens, all sexual sobriety is, is is what happens when you are lust free. You can get sexual sobriety and still be lusting, but it isn't worth much. The most extreme example was the guy who long ago in our group, with a very generous IQ, he convinced himself that not masturbating meant He was sexually sober. So he would masturbate to the point of ejaculation and stop so that he could be sexually sober. That was his technical sexual sobriety, and it's the most extreme example of technical sexual sobriety I've ever found. But he kept slipping for some reason. His exaggerated use of lust while staying technically sober by his interpretation of our program shows us our real enemy, which is lust. If you play with any lust, it is playing with the tiger, and that tiger will get you. If you stay lust-free and stop lusting instantly when it comes, you can't act out and sexual sobriety is inevitable for you. 
Lust is very pervasive in today's world, but I believe lust has no power. It is our ego that has the power. It is the ego that has always been the enemy. Since caveman times, each of us have been equal in that we are born separate and alone. And our life has been spent on a spiritual quest to demolish the ego. What ego uses to destroy us is, is the problem. And those, what ego has used to destroy us through time has varied from time to time. And currently today, ego is using lust. So the minute we are ready for the prayer, God help us, God works perfectly, and lust is powerless before that prayer of God help us. What is the spiritual sickness of lust? At first we see it as wanting sexual stimulation at that moment, instead of what thing God is offering us at that moment, especially we use lust to avoid the pain that God was offering at that moment, and because of it, it is like the fire alarm goes off and we cut the wires to the fire alarm because we don't like fire alarms, and that part of the house burns down. And that's why immaturity is our problem in say, because how can you grow up if you avoid all pain and the learning from all pain? So that's why when we come into S.A., we do the most precious thing which we have never done before, which is finally grow up. And as Pat Karn said so beautifully, at that time, the only man who had any experience with this stuff, he said, in your first three to five years of sexual sobriety, you go through early adolescence. And in the next seven to ten years of sexual sobriety, you go through early adulthood. I started growing up at age 57. By his time schedule, I would not reach early adulthood until 63. But that was no problem, because that beats the hell out of the alternative, which is never doing it. So the spiritual sickness of lust is wanting sexual stimulation at that moment instead of what God is offering us. Later we come to see lusting is wanting anything other than what God is offering us each moment. My story tells how lust killed my life. I was one of the founders of one of the other 12-step programs. And my story tells how stopping all lust instantly and seeing lust for what it is really seeing lust for what it really is, has led me to a new life that I didn't even know existed. Say nothing of knowing it was possible for me. So to me, this program is only about one thing, lust. All the rest is just details. Lust is the only issue. Sexual sobriety is the inevitable result. Lust is the only issue. Sexual sobriety is the inevitable result. Lust robbed me of real life from age 7 to age 57. Lust cost me 50 years of life. No wonder I wanted to stop all lusting. The minute you told me 
that my lifelong friend was really my enemy. No one had ever told that be me that before, and only your special ability and knowledge could reveal the enemy that was lurking beneath the guise of a friend. It's like a spy novel. Your most special agent is the agent for the enemy. And he must be killed instantly. I had never suspected him, lust. And no wonder I was immediately grateful. And to remember Jean here, I say, as she did, I'm never sufficiently grateful. And most important of all, since you came to me ten years ago and told me who the enemy was, this fellowship has given me the safe haven where I could seek a lust-free life. My sponsorees claim to need my help, but it's actually a set-up job. They're faking their illness so they can ask me the questions they need to ask so that then I have to answer them and then have to follow my own good advice. <laughs> I just wanted them to know that I know their trick. <laughs> As I have progressed down your path, I have found that a, a lust-free path has led me to a beauty and a joy of life I had always thought I had always sought since a young man. When I was 17, I went to our Baptist minister after being baptized at 12, and I watched the contradictions of church life as a very religious young man. And I loved it there. But I said to that pastor, Reverend Patterson, I said, there's got to be something more. Now I know what that something more is. This is a talk I've been thinking about for a number of years. I was going to write an anonymous book about it. But then you people in Nashville gave me the God-sent chance to say it instead, which is so much better. So like so many of my books were said to a group, so is this talk my experience, strength, and hope, and my book to you about what you gave me. Our program is one of attraction rather than promotion. I was taught that in the fall of 1966 by some old AAs. I took my wife to a meeting at her request. I stayed because of the warmth and love I felt at that meeting. Their love and warmth attracted me. Their love for me opened my heart to them. Their love for me started the healing I needed in my life. That was in the other 12-step fellowship that I refer to, not AA. Their love for me caught me and held me long enough so that I could start learning. It was their love that attracted me. Then the old-time AAs in Bozeman stepped in and started to teach this crazy guy, crazy without, a, crazy without benefit of alcohol, but crazy because of a drug they didn't know, and I didn't know I was on. Those old AAs taught me who I was over and over again, a child of God. But I thought, how can that be me? Because a child of God doesn't have a name. And the answer is, that's true, because none of us do have a name. We came from a place where we did not have a name, and we will go back to a place where we do not have a name. But we are all one. For 16 years, I went to my meetings and AA open meetings, but it is so significant you asked me to speak on the 12th step 
because in my 12-step work in Bozeman, my life was an almost complete failure in attracting people to that other 12-step program. I couldn't attract anybody. A couple of years into that program, my wife and I were able to ask to help keep the, were asked to help keep that program alive by taking it away from a crazy founder. And we reorganized it on a 12-step AA type basis. We were the original co-founders of the group of 10 of us and trusted servants that ran it. The earlier guy had run it as his private kingdom. We helped write the book, and our stories were the first ones in the book. I tell you these things not to brag, but so you can see the horror I went through as the years went by. Through my seven books, I carried the message of that program to hundreds and hundreds of people who wrote to that central office seeking help. One woman said, how does it make you feel that almost all our mail comes from your books? And I just shook my head. I didn't understand. But one thing increasingly horrified me. I couldn't carry the message in my own town through my own life. My words in my book were beautiful, in my books were beautiful and powerful. My life wasn't beautiful and powerful. The people who read my books were attracted to the program in droves. But the people who read the big book of my life didn't want it. I watched people my books had attracted start meetings that grew astronomically. Yet when my wife dropped out of the Bozeman, the flourishing Bozeman group, the membership dropped way down and it just barely stayed alive for the next five years when I was in that program. So I had five years of failure in my life at 12-stepping in another program. That was one thing that was making me ready. The other thing was a volcano of sexual addiction that blew up in my face in 1969 and 1970. I had been a popular college professor working closely with women students for seven years with honor, without any lust. But in 1969 and 1970, my addiction blew up in my face. God to help me each morning and slip again. I would ask God to help me. I would wake up in the middle of the night with fire in my belly, wondering why I couldn't stop and seeing that my whole life was on the line each day. I resigned my professorship because my addiction was destroying my love for teaching and my fear of the consequences. I immediately got into affairs and violated as I slipped down that toboggan slide of into hell violated every canon and every honor and everything about me. I had no integrity in the beginning and I had nothing but shame and horror at the end. Then in July of 1976 in a Westwood, California bookstore where I had gone to spend three days with a woman I'd been having the affair with, one of them, and I saw all of a sudden that I love my wife more than anyone in the world, and she was the person I most wanted to be with, and if that was so, why didn't I act like it? And why, in the face of difficulties with her when we had things to work out, did I go like a dog with my tail between my legs and crawl 
away from her in fear. And I saw that I had to break off this three-day thing, this affair with this woman a day early, and go back home and try to learn how to be a man and how to be responsible. That was in July, late July of 76. So I had white-knuckle sobriety in another 12-step program without you and without the secret. Jackie thought I was trying to torture her to death. She had recovery in another 12-step program and a new way of life. I knew there was something wrong in my marriage and with women, but I didn't know what it was. I had stopped the acting out. There was an occasional masturbation or occasional use of porno from the satellite dish, but that was a once-a-month kind of a thing, the kind of thing that none of you would have any respect for. And through this, I was running a school of life that people came to from all over and found better lives for it. We helped an unbelievable number of people to a new way of life. And some of those people are still friends today and still tell how we helped them. And we did. But it's the story of the wounded healer. Uh, fortunately, because some of our healers are pretty wounded, they can still help anyway. So here I was in a 12-step program that I couldn't attract anybody to. I was teaching the good life to other people, but something was wrong with mine, and I didn't know what. So in March of 1983, there was a, an idiot sexaholic exhibitionist jerk in some kind of recovery, minister going around the AA community telling his wild tales about his descent into hell as a sexual addict, and boy, was that a spectacular tale. At the end, he got to the point where he was looking out over his congregation, deciding what woman in that congregation he was going to have sex with that night, and he would go to a local motel in a little town and check in with her. <laughs> yeah, that shows how the path to idiocy goes. Well, that story got a Wow, did you hear about him? <laughs> that was talking about all over... Uh, AA, fortunately, <laughs> so my wife heard about the story. And finally, because uh, I wasn't acting out, I would just walk into a restaurant and make damn sure that that waitress knew who I was and what I was. And I was, you know, I thought it was kidding and joking. Huh. I was coming on to every woman I saw. I'd lie beside my bed at night beside my wife in bed at night fantasizing sex with another woman. There were three women, or two women in our bed. How low can you go? There's nothing lower than that. People think, well, a, a criminal sex rapist, he's lower than that. The hell he is. You don't go lower than low. So uh, my wife, in a great moment of clarity and in a growing recovery, got a hold of a folder Handed me a folder with two telephone names and get an S.A. or get out. 34 years of marriage. Seven years after I had quit my acting out. You know, that was my reward for being a good guy. What are you guys laughing at? That's, 
this is serious. I was being the best guy I could. You know, and my wife would call me a jerk, and I would use it as a tranquilizer, some sexual deal, you know, about these women that loved me. Now, one of them did try to blackmail me, but, you know, I mean, it was really, she really loved me. I mean, she wanted to, and she just had these little problems like wanting to blackmail me and some things, you know. <laughs> it was true love. So my wife hands me this folder and says, essay or get out. I called Kent on the phone, who, by the way, came. He was the other guy that was in the program at that time. Uh, well, there were others at that time from the first Dear Abby letter. And he said, Jess, it's lust. It's what's in your head that is killing you. That was the greatest relief that I have ever felt. Nothing in my life has been more important than that. Because, yeah, I got married and that was important. I had children they were important. But those things didn't exist when lust was in my head. Okay? When lust stopped being in my head, then my wife and my marriage and my family and my friends and myself came into existence from that moment. And you say, well, that's making too much of a thing. Well, the hell it is. You haven't lived my life. And that's why I stressed what that life was like before, which the external signs was great, but the internal signs was awful. So I went to see Kent, and I couldn't get to the meeting right away. I had a little problem. I was... I was uh, in the process of saying a book to a group of people at a seminar I'd set up in Phoenix, it was a funny title to the book. It was, How to Have a Perfect Marriage with Your Present Mate. And those meetings delayed my coming because they were on Wednesday night and the SA meeting was Wednesday night, so I couldn't come to the SA meeting right away. But I didn't need to because I was lust-free from that telephone call until today. When I got to the meetings, I found to my horror that uh, by the time I got there, uh, a couple, uh, one of my sons was coming into treatment in Oklahoma City, and I was going to have to leave Phoenix in, in 30 days. So I had 30 days of meeting life, but fortunately I had been around a, few, a while and knew something about the program. <coughs> so I immediately did my first step to the meeting and told about all of the sexual things I had done which bothered me. I did my fourth and fifth step with my sponsor. I got a sponsor right away there from that group and did my fourth and fifth step and worked all of the steps, worked the first nine steps over in terms of my sexual addiction. So I had a ton of lusting to stop, and that's why my story in the little blue book says it was all in my head. So like uh, Mike uh, C. from Chicago, I've got to apologize for my poor acting out story. It's so feeble compared to the wonderful acting out stories you guys have. And when a 
when a person with a real story like a violent rapist or a child molester or somebody like that, somebody, they, they feel horror at their story, tells their story, I must pale and cringe. Uh, those details that give us so much concern at the beginning are to me so totally inconsequential because lust is the issue, not those details. When you're lost, you're lost. But I had some advantages. I knew the program was all God, like my old sponsor said. He said, I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, and he's a Catholic who'd been beaten around the ears terribly by his religion. Religion was terribly at fault, and it was the problem, of course. So he was on skid row. So when he came into AA, he crawled on his hands and knees up that second floor AA meeting room. He didn't take the God part. He got the two-step deal, first and tw- one and twelve. Well, how in the hell you, can you do one and twelve without any God in there? But anyway, he thought he didn't have any God part. So after five years, he says, hey, I want long-term sobriety. How do you get it? He says to his sponsors. And the old twelve apostles, as he called them, sat him down at the bargaining table and told him, hey, Vince, you want this long-term sobriety. You've got to get the spiritual, the God part of this program. So he says, I started working on the God part. You know, he says, I found now that there ain't nothing else. There ain't no other part. So I said, God help me, the minute I had any lust in my mind, I took every measure I could to avoid lust, stayed out of malls, stayed away from the television. I'd see, might see, be walking down the street and see a woman come towards me. I'd walk over the other side of the street if I had to, to avoid lust. The people in my meetings in those days thought, what the hell are you doing? You're, you're giving up the best part of life, they said to me. I thought, well, maybe I am. And I'm a maniac. No problem. Sometimes it serves me to a good advantage, and that was one, I'll tell you, where it really served me. Now, if a prayer of God helped me, wouldn't get rid of lust, because sometimes them lust tapes, it'd be like I'd just be driving along, and all of a sudden, bang, my ego had slipped a videotape in the car of the most intense sex possible, and I'm watching it play. Where'd that come from? Well, my ego knows where, where the lust tapes are, and they pop, pop some on there for amusement. <laughs> so I say, God help me. And the, t- and the videotape doesn't shut off. It's still going there. So then I go into the heavyweight stuff. I, for me, it's the Our Father, a long prayer. Our Father. And I'm saying that prayer, and the, and the videotape is still playing. It won't shut off. There's no problem I found because I found two things. Number one, when I'm praying, lust can't get really a hold of me because lust needs needs my undivided attention. And I will never give lust my undivided attention. I, that, that damn videotape can play and play. And then I found another secret, and that is I could always pray longer than my luster would last. So always at the end of one of those Our Fathers would be a time when the tape was gone. Now, it might come back on five minutes later. No sweat. Here we go again, boys. Our God help me, God help me, God help me, Our Father. So, now there have been times when... Uh, 
that tape will be on, and I'm just a little lethargic about snapping into the God help me, you know, a second or two. I hear these people with these 10-second lust rules. I say, hell, you can do a lot of lusting in 10 seconds to slip. Good. And even three seconds, that ain't fast enough for me. I need the second thought. The first thought's on God, because I'm an insane sexaholic, and God knew what he was doing when he made me that way. But the second thought, that's on my, that's on me, buddy, and I don't want it. So the, if, sometimes I'm in my third or fourth thought before I'm aware that what I'm, where I'm at, bang, God help me. Sometimes, I've said that God help me prayer so many times that a lot of times now, I'll see something, an occasion of lust, and start lusting, and I'll hear myself, I've already been saying God help me two, three times before I'm aware. So there's the lust, the God help me before I'm aware of the whole sequence. It just, it just, just built into me like patch pockets in a suit. So from the start I had a ton of lusting, but I saw I got the same relief from stopping lusting that all the others got from stopping lots of acting out and lusting. So being a scientist, I happen to be a PhD psychologist and I'm really a social philosopher, but a scientist. I see very clearly from that that lusting is the problem. If a, if a guy who just lusts stops and gets the same results as a guy who stops lusting and acting out, it says that the acting out is really not the problem. I knew the program was all God and believed it totally, so I just knew I needed to have to stop. I only had 30 days before leaving. I did my steps. I'll mention that to you. In, I stopped lusting that sharply for 30 days, got to Oklahoma City, and I've got two kids who were uh, drug and alcohol counselors. And they both looked at me and said, Dad, you're different in 30 days. And the shame and guilt, most of it went away. I thought shame and guilt was some historic thing uh, that came with the territory and, uh, you know, old Siggy. When I went to the Army in 19, at 17 years old, I carried Freud's interpretation of dreams, the giant thing, with me in my footlocker. I had Swedenborg's essay, or, uh, uh, yes, Swedenborg's philosophy, Emerson's essays, Khalil Gibram's The Prophet, and a book called Eternal Life, which is a book written in Germany in 1907 saying, Can science and religion coexist? Okay, that's the kind of collection of books I had in my footlock when I was 17 years old. You could see what path I was headed on if you would have, you, if I would have had any wisdom, I could have seen it. Not very many army guys had those books in their footlock. <laughs> but after 30 days of stopping lusting, and my kid says, Dad, you're different. And the shame and guilt went away. Most of it. Almost all of it. Because I was, I thought shame and guilt came from some things that I'd done in the past, but no, it was, when you do those shitty kind of things I'm doing on a daily basis, if you don't feel ashamed and guilty, there is something seriously wrong with you. So the people who say, well, I got my guilt, yeah, quit doing what you feel guilty about. So I gave a talk uh, when I first came to Oklahoma City with about 30 days of sobriety, and uh, uh, my little friend Sylvia came trotting in, and... Uh, 
she heard my talk, and then she says, well, I'm, go- I- I'm a sexaholic, so i got to act out one last time and then come in. <laughs> she doesn't tell that to herself, but I do. <laughs> I'm not perfect yet. <laughs> so we had a meeting. And then I went to uh, Provo to talk to overeaters and say, hey, I don't know anything about overeating because of my books, you see. And well, I'll tell you about uh, sexual addiction. I talked to them and a whole bunch of women signed up and uh, we had a group in Salt Lake City. And then I went to Minneapolis uh, to make a talk and uh, the group started up there, the one that Jim was talking about. And I went to Bozeman uh, for my school of life and a uh, guy was there from Edmonton, and so he started a group in Edmonton, and the Bozeman group started. And went to Seattle and gave a talk to some alcoholics there, our family did, and uh, talked to the sexaholics in the evening, and a group, there had been a group there, died out, and it started up again. And just wherever I went, a group popped up. My son said, Daddy says, you're just like Johnny Appleseed. <laughs> Was it me and my charisma? Uh-uh. Obviously not. Me and my charisma didn't work before, did it? Didn't work worth a damn. How come? Old Dave there, he knows about charisma. Where in the hell's Alan Clements? He's got that curse of charisma also. Alan Clements walks into a room and all the women fall flat. They used to do that when Dave walked into the room, but he's got... <laughs> He got a little longer in the tooth like me. You know, not as bad as me, but I mean, he got a little older, so. Because that's a problem with charisma. It, it tends to, to droop the older you get. <laughs> no, charisma it wasn't the secret. What the hell was a secret? It's simple. To me, it's very simple. It was a lust-free spirit. I think that's why Nashville is so big, because you had two lust-free spirits here. There were three people started in Nashville. When I was in Simi Valley uh, in the early days, uh, Roy called a meeting in Simi Valley. And uh, in December of 1983, there were about 15 of us there. And one of the guys there was a guy, another Roy, Call him Little Roy. Said about yeah, I loved the program. Just excited about sexual sobriety. Came back here, got a group started, got in touch with Harvey. Uh, but then got some sobriety and some complacency, and uh, lust snuck in the back door. I suspect, and he says, I need a relationship. God, I need a relationship. If there's anything that pisses me off in this program, it's them relationship hounds who come in here after a year and say, Boy, it's time for me now to have a relationship. What the hell do they know about it? God is going to give us our relationships when we are ready and need our relationship. And if God doesn't give us our relationship, when that says we ain't ready or we don't need it. Like one of the things God handed me when I walked into this program was obviously a terribly abused uh, sexual life. So I got more celibacy time than most priests in the program. <laughs> I got more celibacy time than all but one priest in this program. That was one of the gifts God had for me. 
But the program tells us that. It says sex is optional. Isn't it beautiful? And it's proof you can build a beautiful marriage. Despite that. That doesn't make my wife totally happy that uh, that was taken away. But uh, uh, there's, there's little obstacles in the road like pebbles that a car will drive over. There's the great big obstacles like the boulders the car won't drive over. So it was the lust-free spirit. That was the only difference. Now people wanted to ha- wanted what I have. If you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. And they wanted what I had. Kind of. I don't have a lot. I don't have a lot of sponsorees because I'm such a cantankerous son of a bitch. That very few people can stand me. So Harvey's cherry, despite his cantankerousness of saying, you know, hanging up the phone, he had 50 sponsorees. I got three. A psychiatrist, a playwright, and a 22-year-old divinity student. They're the only three who can stand me on a regular basis. But that's beautiful, because i got a lot of fishing to do and a lot of other things to do, and that's the way it goes. <laughs> and I come at people pretty hard sometimes, and the only ones that last are the ones that learn to not take me too seriously and come roaring back. The waitress at our table last night was that while that character is ordering his chocolate chip pie, you know, she comes and, and brings me my gonna bring me my apple pie and I'd asked her for chocolate stuff and she named chocolate stuff and then she slacked off and I'll take the the apple pie and she hadn't mentioned the chocolate chip pie. Mention that. You know, I need that instead of the apple pie. Okay. She said, Well I'll just set this one down. I said, you know, give it to my older friend over there pointing to Jim. And so she puts it on my plate and walks away. Oh, I love that woman like that. Strong. And that's that's the only way you're going to be able to live with me, buddy. I tell you, you're going to have to have some fire in that sucker there, that little guy. he got a hell of a lot more fire than you might think he's got. <laughs> but all this time I couldn't figure out why others would play with lust and weren't willing to stop like I was. But I had all these things I've told you about. Lust nearly cost my marriage. Lust smashed every value I had. Lust made a mockery of my life. Lust robbed me of my integrity. Lust made it impossible to really practice my other program. Lust made it impossible to, to attract others to that program. So I had so many reasons for giving up lust that others didn't have. That's why I said I was grateful sexaholic in the first meetings I came to. I was grateful for it because that's what it took for me to break out of my prison and to smash a hole in my monstrous ego. But I think there... I remember one time I was at an AA Open AA conference and I said I was the supreme egotist in the place. I practically had to fight, I practically had to fight everybody in the place for the title. <laughs> Because there's a chance that there might be another ego or two lying around here that's of some consequence. (laughs) So I had two adventures in this program. One was my adventure in fellowship. 
where I have reached out to others in every way I could. It was hard to reach out with the phone or letter, but as AA says, I acted my way to right thinking because an isolated sexaholic will reach out only when there's uh, some importance for him. Isolated sexaholics have no problems going to the porno shop. They have no troubles being seen going into the porno shop, but they're too dainty to be able to pick up the phone and call their sponsor. <laughs> I'm too isolated, and I can't ask out of me. <laughs> they can lie and cheat and steal to support their addiction, but all... Oh, Call somebody? Oh, you don't know me. I'm poor baby. <laughs> and by reaching out to you, and as Jim showed so beautifully in his story, and by reaching out to you, by the way, I was the one that gigged that sucker and said, hey, dummy, start an SA group. You know, I don't want to. That's fine. And by reaching out to you, I could then be healed by you. My second adventure was with lust. It has carried me home. My wife has uh, started teaching me, uh, well, she's always been teaching me, but uh, on this program she started teaching me, by reading me spiritual books and their definitions of what lust was. And instead of me getting by with lust as a sexual thinking and sexual things, she said, no, 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 lust is wanting anything that God doesn't have for you in this moment. Anything God doesn't have for you right now. And uh, I got these clowns in this program who keep coming to me and try to improve my program. And they won't give up. Like old Gordon, he sits back there and he's constantly got my improvement on his mind. <laughs> he's thinking of things I need. So he comes to my town and says, and comes to our meeting and he says, Hey, Jess. And he tells the story as though it's on him, see? Fake, typical fake deal that you guys do on me. <laughs> he tells how his sister and, and uh, family up in Michigan were bothered by his profanity. And they asked Gordon to please, you know, if he possibly could, to put a curb on his tongue. And so he started profanity sobriety. And that was the first opening that I had into the wider sobriety. It's just funneled out now. Yeah, I get a hit from profanity. So I got profanity sobriety, kind of, pretty well. <laughs> And then I got traffic sobriety because I got a hit from speeding. And then I went on to more and more kinds of sobriety to finally I ended up with a much more advanced kind of traffic sobriety, which is compassionate driving, where I give the right away to anyone who needs it or wants it, and I do so in such a way that they don't know that I did it to them. So I'm watching far enough ahead. Yeah, I'm watching far enough ahead because it's very self-serving to 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 serve others and to get attention for it. So I'm looking for that person that needs the right of way up ahead, 
and then just kind of back and off. Or somebody pulls out in front of me too quickly, I'll just kind of slow up so I'm not, so they don't need to be, you know, feel me back there behind them. And that helps, because uh, what life's about is these, you know, you're my brothers and sisters, and I love you. And if I love you, I need to be compassionate to you instead of trying to beat you to the parking spot. I believe we spe- sexaholics have a special talent for pictures. Just as alcoholics can't handle the chemical alcohol, I think we have a special ability to retain pictures. So I don't want pictures in my head. So when I'm watching my beloved Boston Celtics, by the way, my wife, uh, we have a, up a mountain valley in Bozeman, so we have a satellite dish for television, and she watches Jeopardy when she gets home tired from her work at her new serenity shop, her three-year serenity shop. Well, guess what time the Jeopardy's on? And guess what time she comes home? Boston Celtic time. <laughs> it was an uneasy piece of, well, okay, you can watch the game tonight, and I'll do something else. So we got a second dish out back. <laughs> That's the Boston Celtics dish. And each fall I return with new hope. <laughs> but when the, when the Coors, Coors Beers commercial comes on in the Boston Celtics game, I just hit the mute and turn away. And my wife sees that and says, what the hell's wrong with you? You ain't got no... Damn freedom in the world. You're going to run an act out because you see some uh, gals playing on the beach with some guys and she doesn't understand. And I'm not trying to teach her about what sexaholism is. Nobody can understand this but an, a sexaholic. So I say, no, I just don't want those pictures. I got all the pictures I'll ever want. I, don't, I wish I could, you know, take a lot of those pictures away. So I think lust is the common denominator. I think that's the heart of S.A. I think lust is the shield we put up to keep away life, to keep away love, to keep away God, and they're all the same, life, love, and God. Sexual sobriety isn't the issue. Lust is the issue. I've seen lots of sexual sobriety. And some of it isn't worth much. And who are the long-term people who's in sexual sobriety who slip? They're the ones who are lusting, sometimes in its, even its subtlest forms of uh, romantic and other kinds of stuff. Romance books, like those books that you see, the romance novels, those are the dirtiest kind of pornography there is, that section of romance novels in a supermarket. Because the men and women who are reading those books are totally lost. But I've never seen freedom from lust that wasn't staggeringly beautiful and it planted those people's feet firmly on sobriety pathway. So lust-free seems to me to be the total answer to sobriety. Those who don't stay, those who don't lust stay sober. Those who lust don't stay sober. Those who, I'll repeat that, those who don't lust stay sober. Those who lust don't stay sober. 
It's like you can, uh, occasions of lost our inner society constantly. It's like matches dropping on a pavement. Well, right here, I could take and light a farmer match and drop it here. We'll never have a fire, right? Okay, so say I'm lusting. That's like throwing a little kindling wood, a little piece of paper down there, pouring a little gasoline in there, doing a bunch of other stuff. No problem with pouring gasoline on kindling and wood and paper, is there? No fire. But then guess what happens when we have an occasional lust and that match drops on that pile of lust? Whew. What lust is, is going halfway down the toboggan slide and trying to stop. What lust is, is like the guy who masturbated to the point of ejaculation and stopped. So all wanting things that God isn't offering us in this moment is lust and will kill you. Now, you can turn that around and make it into paradise. How many minutes? Twelve minutes? Oh, okay. My wife recently said to me that a spiritual life needs two things. We first must face the fact that we're going to die. And I thought I had because I had a heart attack 30 years ago. And that threat has been hanging over 30 of our 44 years of marriage. But I saw that I wasn't ready to die and that lust and sex with young women was a way of hanging on to life for me and to, and to steal somebody else's life and vitality. You don't see many sexaholics running around trying to find 80 and 90 year old women to run around with. Uh, the funny thing, they're always younger and prettier. So thanks to SA, I did a couple of things. I stopped using sex to hang on to life and drive away death. And because of the peace and joy and love that you have given me and a whole bunch of things I don't understand, I have finally accepted that I'm going to die. And that's so beautiful to accept that because until I accept that, I can't accept then. Yeah, and I'm, but until then, I'm going to live. And so now I'm planting trees, and I'm not frantically grabbing projects so I can do this before I die, and I've got to get that in, I've got to get this other thing. There's no hurry. i got all the time in the world. Now, freedom from lust of all kinds has led me to the same place that the deepest kinds of spirituality I'm studying lead to. The moment-by-moment moment awareness and appreciation of what God is offering me at this moment, that's life at its highest. There isn't anything, there isn't anything greater than that. Now, you're all used to it. You've all experienced it regularly, you just didn't understand quite how radical it was, and you experienced it, each of you, in your meetings. 
When you're in that meeting, there isn't hardly a wandering thought in that meeting, except in the worst, you know, in the newest people, the worst of worst office people. But most of us walk in those meetings and we listen like Vince did as at his meetings. He sat there in those meetings, just stared at the man as though his life depended on it. And it did. He said to me one time, he said, Jess, he said, a meeting is worth a book. He would reflect and chew over those meetings until the next one, all day long, the lessons of those meetings. And then we gradually take that outside. The dumbest thing I ever hear in meetings is people say, well, them earth people out there, they don't understand us. That flake. They don't understand that those people out there are really further along in life than we are. They just don't, they can't be approached by the same language and the same basis. We just need to adjust some things. There's a line in the problem. We went for the connection that had the magic because it bypassed intimacy and true union. But we were looking for that magic. Do you remember any of you guys that looking for that magic? Well, I got good news for you. I got good news for you. By now I've found the real connection and the real magic. And the last four days, or three days, and I mention that most specifically because we have shared them together, I've been experiencing that magic. As I have been moving among you these three days, I've had the watchful eye of the hawk for those of you who are carrying God's gifts for me. As we caught each other's eye, Almost all the time I was able to receive the gift you had for me. It could have been a loving glance. It could have been an appreciative smile, a recognition of another of God's children. It could have been that you had some gift to give me. It should it could have been you gave me the gift of serving you in some way. So that is the real magic, not the false, it is the real gold, not the fool's gold that you and I spend our lifetimes chasing. As one great spiritual man said, the world is its own magic. And it's there, it's as close in a side-by-side is the ego and a razor's edge away from it is that whole total life there to be discovered. And the way I found it was because of pursuing a lust-free life with your help in your company, I came to this new land on my own and found all of a sudden I was there at this place that I had asked Reverend Patterson about at age 17 Fifty years ago, there must be something more. And there is something more, and I found it, and I know where it is. And it is right here with you, 
But when I go home, it is right there in my home with my wife and with my children who respect me and love me. Very few husbands have heard the kind of things that I've heard in this late process of making amends that I've done. When I came in this program, I didn't make a single damn verbal amends. Yeah, they're a bunch of crap. I was, in the first 17 years, I was sick to my guts of what I'd seen about verbal amends. To me, the amends to make our living amends. If you're different, show me. And I've been showing my wife that I love her, and so when she asked for something, I'd jump and do it. And a while back, a couple years ago, she said, Jess, I need a an extra shelf in the top of my closet. But she said, for heaven's sakes, please don't jump up and do it right now. At first, when she started her serenity shop three years ago, she and my son, they wanted to learn it themselves, and my job was to keep my mouth shut, and I kept my mouth shut. And boy, I tell you, if you if you are sitting there and watching a wreck coming, <laughs> and you know it, and you can keep your damn mouth shut, I tell you, buddy, I want to shake your hand, because that is the hardest damn thing there is to do. So I kept, So I kept my mouth shut. But now recently, this last year, she's been asking me some questions. And she'll say, Jess, you know, what do you think we should do about this? And I'll say, well, honey, it seems to me that your and Joe's job is to serve spiritually, and that's what you're doing so great. She's got a learning disabled son of ours that she's teaching how to live there, too. I said, you and Joe are learning how to serve people spiritually. You're both learning the retail business. He's learning the trade. And the fact that you're losing some money yet uh, because of various factors beyond your control is not of consequence. Just a minute, don't go so fast. I want to write this down. Now, not very many husbands have had their wives say that to them. Please don't go too fast, dear. I want to write it all down. <laughs> Especially wives of sexaholics. And so, back to what we learned from Nashville. Each of you here is so vital. Dave from B.C., Francis from Saskatchewan, Kim from Ohio, Art from Georgia, Dave from Texas, Dan from San Diego. Each of you can be the person who life changes, whose life changes a whole state or province. Just as the people in the, as, as Harvey and Jean, presence here in Nashville, totally altered the whole city of Nashville. This is a different city because of the work they're doing, but particularly it's a different city for all of us. And I don't think this is too bad a place to work. I just got through telling a couple last night, for God's sakes, move your butt to to Nashville and get a job here where you've got the most loving fellowship you could possibly find to lay in the arms of that fellowship. Why did Nashville grow so big? Because of the massive humility of Harvey and Jean. Each in their own special way were powerful examples of wanting to follow this program as it was written down and by the words and lives and lives of AA. Both had the humility to be, to constantly seek support, help and direction despite the pull of their sexaholic isolation. Their loving care and the help of people like the two Daves Jimmy and others took a fragile plant and nourished it through tough times. 
In other cities we have seen AA start and stop and flourish. Rather, in other cities we have seen SA start and stop or flourish for a while and slow down. But we know from the Nashville experience that each city, state, and province is waiting for the people whose lives are so changed by SA that any of us, drunken fools, can sense that they have what we want and make us willing to be, to go to, be willing to go to any lengths to get it. And then, like in Nashville, you go from the two meetings to over 20, and you send out tentacles that radiate out to other nearby towns and cities. And so does SA's life-giving message get carried to the one who still suffers. So this is what I have been doing as I have been walking among you here, is living this new life that you gave me. I've been receiving all your gifts. And now there's a new bunch of golden threads between me and each of you that will last forevermore. Thank you very much. I love you all. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.